Section five of Ulysses S. Grant by Owen Wister. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five, part two. Secession's frontier at this time was a slight curve from Columbus eastward and up to Bowling Green, then down to Cumberland Gap. It thus lapped over a little from Tennessee into Kentucky. Its weak point was the hole made in it by two rivers, the Tennessee and Cumberland, crossing it twelve miles apart. Two forts barred these precious highways, Henry and Donelson. If these two gates were knocked down, the Union had a clear road to the heart of the South. For, by the Tennessee, troops could travel into Alabama and be fed also. Thus secession's frontier could be pushed back, and as it receded down along the bank of the Mississippi, that highway almost inevitably must open. This was clear to many eyes, but to McClellan's it was not visible. This general-in-chief could see nothing beyond his own movements. At St. Louis, Fremont had been succeeded by a person equally incapable. General Halleck was the sort of learned soldier who brings learning into contempt. He was full of jomini and empty of all power to master a situation. On him, Grant, like others, urged the value of striking Forts Henry and Donelson. But Halleck, whether under McClellan's influence or for other reasons, snubbed him. And so, for a while, the matter rested. At length, however, after General Thomas, near Cumberland Gap, had knocked the east end of Secession's frontier southward, and consequently threatened its middle at Bowling Green, Halleck, relinquishing his notion that 60,000 men were necessary, let Grant go with 17,000 and seven gunboats under Commodore Foote. This was February 2nd. In four days Grant had Fort Henry. In ten more Fort Donelson and the gates to the rivers were open. Secession's frontier was crashed through from Columbus to Cumberland Gap and shrank many miles southward. It was quick and final. And Grant had thought of it and done it. He was indebted to nobody. His own letter about it, written to Washburn a month later, is like him. I see the credit of attacking the enemy by way of the Tennessee and Cumberland is variously attributed. It is little to talk about it being the great wisdom of any general. General Halleck, no doubt, thought of this route long ago, and I am sure I did. Let it be said that Grant's adversaries helped him greatly. In dividing his 30,000 men and sending but 16,000 to Donelson, Sidney Johnston made a perilous error. In giving the command to Floyd and Pillow, he made the error worse. Grant knew them. He struck and won. They deserted, leaving Buckner to conduct the surrender. The news to the Union was a breath of health after jaded months of sickness. Grant's words, I propose to move immediately upon your works, and unconditional surrender, were like a backbone appearing in something that had begun to look like a jellyfish. He was now made Major General of Volunteers. This battle, like all his others, 
has been proved a mere bungle by hostile critics. The spirit of these gentlemen can be given to the reader in a word. One of them, after exposing Grant's tactics, exposes his English. I propose to move immediately upon your works, would be grammar, he says, if immediately had come at the end. But now Grant was suddenly relieved of command and put in arrest. Halleck had not heard from him, and Halleck had heard of his leaving his post and going to Nashville. Grant's enemies, the contractors, had not enjoyed his recent suggestion to Halleck that all fraudulent contractors be impressed into the ranks, or still better, into the gunboat service, where they could have no chance of deserting. They therefore had surrounded Halleck with rumors, entirely false, of Grant's drinking. Halleck had had a spy watching Grant's habits in a little house that was his headquarters before the surrender. He now, never waiting to learn the cause of Grant's silence, which was due to interrupted communications, or Grant's reason for going to Nashville, which was to confer with Buell, who had occupied that town, petulantly complained to Washington. It was set right in nine days, but Halleck was afraid to let Grant know the hand he had had in it. Grant never vouchsafed a syllable to the world's injurious assaults upon him at this hour, or at any other of his life. But in a letter to Washburn he gives us a glimpse into his silent soul. There are some things which I wish to say to you in my own vindication, not that I care a straw for what is said individually, but because you have taken so much interest in my welfare. And one evening during the nine days' humiliation, a sword was presented to him by some officers. After their speech and departure, he stood, looking at the gift in silence, where it lay before him on the table of the gunboat cabin. Suddenly, pushing it from him, he exclaimed, I shall never wear a sword again, and turned away. Only one or two witnessed this breaking of the real man from the depths of his grief and generally he managed to keep a face like stone. But upon the occasion when he learned of his friend McPherson's death, he went into his tent and wept like a child. At this time he walked in intimate silence with C. F. Smith, his West Point commandant, and his temporary superior now. And those who saw them say that Grant's manner to Smith was something of an old pupil's respect and something of a plain man's admiration for his more polished and splendid friend, while Smith, on his side, treated Grant as a creature whose larger dimensions he felt and bowed to. Some further pictures of Grant at Donelson show several sides of the man. On the eve of the surrender, Pillow had made a desperate sortie while Grant was conferring with Foote on his gunboat. For a while it was a bad business, and when Grant returned he flushed at the havoc made in his absence. His reputation was at stake. He gathered the fragments, and before evening knew he was master by a shrewd inference which has become historic. The enemy's haversacks held three days' rations. Others saw in this a preparation for a three days' fight but Grant knew it meant not fight but flight. 
He saw that next morning would give him Donelson. He wrote to Halleck, they will surrender tomorrow, and, when asked if this was not a premature message, referred to the haversacks as the basis of his conviction. When the surrender was arranged, one of the young men, the one who had spoken of Jomini, hoped that they would have the picturesque formalities of such occasions, the lowered flags and so forth. But Grant said emphatically, no. Why humiliate a brave enemy, he inquired. We've got them. That's all we want. When the crestfallen Buckner capitulated, and Grant found him penniless in the forlorn place, he remembered Buckner's friendly help when he had been penniless in New York. He left the officers of his own army, says Buckner in a speech long afterward, and followed me, with that modest manner peculiar to himself, into the shadow, and there tendered me his purse. It seems to me, Mr. Chairman, that in the modesty of his nature he was afraid the light would witness that act of generosity, and sought to hide it from the world. We can appreciate that, sir. Indeed, we can, and we can appreciate Buckner's own warm heart whenever history gives us a glimpse of it. When Grant was bidding this world good-bye in patience and suffering, Buckner was one of the last to visit him and take his hand. The pen would linger over Donelson, over Smith's gallantry that saved the day on the 15th and his delightful address to the Iowa volunteers, over McLernan's good fighting and over Foot and his gunboats. About the Navy, indeed, a word must be said. From Fort Henry, which it took unaided, to the day when Vicksburg fell and the great river rolled unvexed to the sea, the Navy was not only illustrious and invaluable, but also it made fewer mistakes than the Army. The names of Foote, Porter, Davis, and Farragut, let Ellett's be added too, must be spoken together with those of the land soldiers. As someone has happily said, the Army and the Navy were the two shears of the scissors. From Donelson, Grant stepped into a broadening labyrinth of action. He wished at once to strike Polk at Columbus. Halleck prescribed caution, and Polk, unhindered, escaped south to Corinth, where under Sidney Johnston the South was massing all the strength it could bring. Columbus fell to the Union, and New Madrid and Island Number 10, the next two barriers down the river, were broken by Pope and Foot in March and April. On land it grew plain that somewhere about Corinth the armies must try a big conclusion. This happened not as Grant expected. Restored to command, he had rejoined the army up the Tennessee River and had approved wisely, according to many good opinions, the position at Pittsburgh Landing in the enemy's country, selected by C. F. Smith. But he looked for no battle just here, and here Sidney Johnston surprised him. On Sunday and Monday, April 6 and 7, was fought the Battle of Shiloh, Buell arriving in time to reinforce Grant for Monday's fight. The words of Buell are the words of an embittered rival, but they tell the unanswerable truth. 
an army comprising seventy regiments of infantry, twenty battalions of artillery, and a sufficiency of cavalry, lay for two weeks and more in isolated camps, with a river in its rear and a hostile army claimed to be superior in numbers twenty miles distant in its front while the commander made his headquarters and passed his nights nine miles away on the opposite side of the river it had no line or order of battle no defensive works of any sort no outposts properly speaking to give warning or check the advance of an enemy and no recognized head during the absence of the regular commander on a sunday the hostile force arrived and formed in order of battle without detection or hindrance within a mile and a half of the unguarded army advanced upon it the next morning penetrated its disconnected lines of grant himself is nothing to be said if he could have done anything in the beginning he was not on the ground in time but he was one of the many there who would have resisted while resistance could avail that is all that can be said but it is an honorable record a severe judgment which controversy sustains and history will affirm inexperience is the honest explanation grant's fame is not helped by covering shiloh and grant's fame can stand the truth so also did napoleon lose touch of his enemy at marengo through failure to use his cavalry for reconnoitering he went to sleep expecting no battle in the morning and in the morning he was surprised and defeated by milas as johnston surprised and defeated grant reinforced by desay's return in the afternoon he recovered himself as grant reinforced by buell recovered himself on the second day the union lost some thirteen thousand men the south eleven thousand and understood thereafter that all american blood was equally gallant whether northern or southern grant made another mistake here and his reasons for not pursuing the enemy who had lost sidney johnston the first day are not convincing mr john fisk quoting sherman's remark about it to himself gives the human clue to this bad military error i assure you my dear fellow we had had quite enough of their society for two whole days and were only too glad to get rid of them on any terms the writer has heard this same explanation from another soldier so the enemy now under beauregard fell back to corinth and with needless and pompous caution was driven from there by the learned halleck after some weeks for the learned halleck came down now and took command personally and grant was again under a cloud a mere onlooker with the sterile position of second in command again as always he answered no word to the furious storm of abuse which the country let loose upon him to washburn he wrote i would scorn being my own defender except through the record of all my official acts to say that i have not been distressed would be false one thing i will assure you of however i cannot be driven from rendering the best service within my ability to suppress the present rebellion 
and to his father he wrote, You must not expect me to write in my own defense, nor to permit it from any one about me. I know that the feeling of the troops under my command is favorable to me, and so long as I continue to do my duty faithfully, it will remain so. I require no defenders. Nevertheless, his spirit was near being broken. He had nothing given him to do. He was in a sort of disgrace. There seemed no outlook. Halleck had removed his willing hand from the plow. At Corinth he had applied for a thirty days' leave, when Sherman, his good friend, suspected that all was not well with him. I inquired for the general, says Sherman, and was shown to his tent, where I found him seated on a camp-stool with papers on a rude camp-table. I inquired if it were true that he was going away. He said yes. I then inquired the reason, and he said, Sherman, you know. You know that I am in the way here. I have stood it as long as I can, and can endure it no longer. I then begged him to stay, illustrating his case by my own. Before the Battle of Shiloh I had been cast down by a mere newspaper assertion. He promised to wait. Very soon after this I received a note from him, saying that he would remain. Thus did Sherman at the right time stretch his hand to Grant and help him rise from Shiloh and go on to Vicksburg, Chattanooga, and Appomattox. As Donelson, so now Corinth opened more gates down the Mississippi, Fort Pillow, and Memphis. Before the first of May, Farragut and Porter had taken New Orleans. Vicksburg should have followed as naturally as the last brick in a tumbling row, but the learned Halleck was there to save it with his finical and disastrous meddling. He had a hundred thousand men reporting for duty. Beauregard had half that number. He had also the moral impetus of victory, while the South was shaken and disconcerted by Shiloh and Sidney Johnston's death. The very brilliant exploits of Mitchell had opened the way to Chattanooga for him. Mobile and Vicksburg were but feebly protected. Other men had gathered these opportunities, which now slid away like sand through his inanely opened fingers. He sat cautiously down, sent Buell to repair a railroad, which was promptly torn up, sent away troops to hold unprofitable points, refused troops to Farragut, who wished to strike Port Hudson and Vicksburg. Forbade Pope to risk a battle on any consideration, and crowned his whole crass performance with the words, I think the enemy will continue his retreat, which is all I desire. The enemy immediately strengthened Port Hudson, Vicksburg, and Chattanooga, and Halleck was made general-in-chief at Washington. To the blunders of this time may be added the vast farce of the Legal Tender Act, when the government, against the soundest advice and warning, declined to borrow money at market prices, because this would be undignified, and issued instead pieces of paper, which it told the world were worth a dollar, and presently enjoyed the dignity of having the world value at thirty-five cents.
There are blunders in 1862 so stultifying as to seem incredible, had we not seen much the same sort of thing since. But we were fighting Americans, not Spaniards then. Happily, Jefferson Davis made some blunders too, and thus Grant had only Pemberton and not Van Dorn to fight at Vicksburg when the time came. End of chapter 5, part 2